This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to The Health Report with me, Tegan Taylor. Today, using an army of genetically modified animals to create personalised cancer treatment. When someone is diagnosed with cancer, their doctor often has to take a punt on which chemotherapy drug might be most effective. With common cancers, clinical trials have made it pretty clear which work best. But even the best drug overall won't be the best for everyone. With rarer cancers, sometimes there aren't clinical trials to draw on. So research teams around the world have been creating armies of animal proxies to help guide cancer patients' treatment. This is the second of two features from ABC science journalist Carl Smith about how animals and humans are being fused in modern medicine. In 2016, a 49-year-old woman presented at the Cleveland Clinic in the US state of Ohio with severe pain in her abdomen. It was found to have a large lesion in her liver. It was thought to be a tumour of endometrial origin. When doctors found her tumour, they realised it was rare and aggressive and likely to spread. The standard of care would have been a surgery followed by chemotherapy. This is Mohamed Abazid, an associate professor at Northwestern University in the US. He soon joined the patient's treating team to try to figure out which chemotherapy drug was most likely to help the woman. Now, this particular subtype of endometrial cancer called clear cell carcinoma are quite rare. There are only hundreds of cases per year in the US, and so randomized controlled trials have not been completed. So picking the right chemotherapy was a bit of a shot in the dark. The standard of care was really extrapolated from other endometrial cancers, and the outcomes were so poor that there was suspicion or question regarding the efficacy of that chemotherapy. The patient had extensive surgery to remove the cancer, but scans showed it had spread. She had weeks of recovery ahead before chemotherapy could begin. So Muhammad and his team decided to use this time to try a radical new way of figuring out which treatment might be best for her. His goal was to create an army of animal avatars. They began by taking some of the tumour that was removed from the patient and injecting it into a mouse. That tumour is injected in the flank. If there is a bump in the flank of the mouse, that means the tumour is beginning to grow and is engrafted. This is known as xenografting. In other words, taking foreign cells or tissue from one species and grafting it onto another. It's just one way human and animal tissues are being combined in modern medicine, sometimes controversially, to try to find new ways to save people's lives. The mice Muhammad Abazid uses are genetically modified to allow the foreign human tumour cells to grow. The mouse lacks an immune system, an adaptive immune system, and so the ability to reject the human tumour is significantly diminished because they're immunosuppressed. Muhammad and his team grafted the patient's tumour onto a dozen mice. And we were impressed by how quickly the tumour developed. And it occurred to us that this could potentially be an opportunity to test the avatar model. In an ideal world, researchers would have tested various cancer drugs on other people with this patient's type of tumour. But for rare cancers, it's much harder to find enough patients for trials. Plus, each individual's cancer might respond differently to drugs anyway. 
The Avatar model is a form of personalized medicine designed to test various chemotherapies on an individual's cancer after it's been grafted onto a bunch of mice. It's better known as a patient-derived xenograft, or PDX, model. We decided to conduct a, essentially a clinical trial in the mouse cohort. There was an exchange with the clinical team regarding what potential therapies they would consider, and so that really guided our mouse clinical trial. And so we decided on a few agents that her physician said may be under consideration. The patient needed about four to six weeks to recover from her surgery before her doctors would start chemotherapy. So Mohammed's team knew how long they'd have to test the drugs on their PDX mice. We tested three distinct compounds initially, one of which would have been the backbone of the standard of care. This drug is called cisplatinum. And it turns out that the mouse did not care that it was receiving that drug. So the patient's tumor in the mouse avatars was resistant to this drug. But it did respond to the other drugs that were tested, called neratinib and gemcitabine. The other genotoxic gemcitabine had a substantial response, and the neratinib had also a moderate to significant response. This avatar trial took five weeks. So just as the patient's doctors were getting ready to begin her chemotherapy, Muhammad handed them his results. They decided to give the patient gemcitabine, the clear winner from the PDX trial, and not the traditional standard of care drug. But Muhammad's job wasn't done yet. We wanted to assess how well does this model perform if it is being treated in parallel fashion with the human And can it predict not only initial responses, but potentially resistance to that initial response and then ultimately secondary responses? Cancers change and mutate over time. Sometimes they develop resistance to first-line therapies. So when we took the gemcitabine-treated mouse and continued to give it gemcitabine over time as the patient had received that therapy over time, we saw that one of the mice had developed resistance to that drug. So this suggested to us that this tumor in some parallel universe was likely to eventually develop resistance to this drug. And in fact, the patient, after several cycles of gemcitabine, had developed resistance and had progression on her imaging scans. We went back to her physicians and said, what additional therapies would you, could you consider? They said the next drugs they'd try were called paslitaxel and neratinib. So... Muhammad xenografted the now-resistant tumour onto more mice and began the second stage of his PDX trial. We tested whether the patient's resistant tumour, or rather I should say the mouse-resistant tumour, would respond to paslitaxel. And if there was an additional advantage to adding this experimental drug, neratinib, the mice did respond to paslitaxel. Um, we saw a more significant response with the combination, suggesting that this particular tumor was responsive to those second-line therapies. And so that's ultimately what the patient received. So did all this work, testing drugs on an army of mice with the patient's tumor grafted onto them, actually help her? Right, so it's obviously really difficult to extrapolate from an N of 1 or an anecdote or a case report, which is what this is. The purpose here was really to assess feasibility. Can this be done? So in 2016 was when she was diagnosed. So we're looking at a four-year 
uh, disease-free survival from the time of diagnosis, which is pretty impressive for a rapidly proliferating aggressive tumor. He says this was the first time a patient-derived xenograft model had been used to actually help guide a patient's therapy. There have been other reports prior to this in which retrospectively the avatar models were treated after the patient had been treated, but in a prospective fashion, it's our understanding that this is the first time that that's been done. Mohamed Abazid is keen to point out that the mouse avatar trial didn't save the patient's life, but it may have helped guide her doctor's decisions. Even so, it shows the promise of PDX models. They could limit exposure to harmful, ineffective chemotherapies, and they could find better drugs faster. But they're not without their problems, including cost and time. In fact, the idea of using PDX models has been around for a while, but it was quickly swept aside by another option. So we've been xenografting human tumors into mice and other animals for well over five, six decades. However, the cost of working with cell lines grown on plastic really nominated cell line derivatives as the main mode of experimental biology and molecular biology research. But testing chemotherapies on cells grown in a dish hasn't proved very effective at predicting how a patient responds to those drugs. One reason why is that these cultured cells are exposed to a very different environment to what's in a living creature. And this has left room for patient-derived xenograft models to make a comeback. So there's been several reports that span about a decade that have suggested that the correlation is actually quite excellent. We know that's not the case for cell line derivatives. Several studies have now shown mouse PDX models match patient responses to chemotherapies around 80% of the time. According to one researcher I talked to, cells cultured in a dish match up about 25% of the time, at best. Plus, Mohamed Abazid says PDX cancers in mice mimic the patient's cancer by remaining genetically similar and showing similar expression of those genes. So if a correlation coefficient of 1 is perfect, uh, we typically see about 0.98 to 0.99 fidelity when looking at the PDX. However, when we put it on plastic from a gene expression perspective, we drop down to about 0.6, 0.7. But there's a catch to using mouse avatars. Most tumors do not engraft in nine days. We have developed about 400 PDXs since then, and about 4 to 5% of our xenografts will engraft within two weeks. So for the other 95% of cases, the model isn't fast enough to get results to clinicians before a patient's chemotherapy begins. Because of this time issue, it's really more difficult. And also tumors can evolve in the patient and in the mice because it takes a lot of time, so cells adapt. Rita Fior is a developmental biologist and group leader at the Champalimod Foundation in Portugal. She's one of several researchers who are looking beyond mice to see if they can find a better animal avatar model. So yeah, I'm using fish, zebrafish. The idea in the case of the zebrafish is to do it in a time frame that can be used for, for clinical decisions. She and her team have been grafting human tumors onto zebrafish embryos. This means using a much smaller sample of the patient's tumor. And it means a much faster PDX trial. Two weeks to have the result. 
So how effective is this model then? We start with colorectal cancer. So what we have at the moment with a cohort of around 40 patients is that we have around 84% of predictive rate. So we can predict whether the patient is going to respond or have no response and is going to progress. We also have really great results in breast cancer, in ovarian cancer. So I think it's really promising. And surprisingly, zebrafish not being mammals hasn't been a major hurdle, according to her early results. Biochemically, of course, there are many differences between a zebrafish and a human. But in fact, most of the signaling pathways or the way cells talk to each other or regulate their behaviour, they're highly concerned. Rita Fior hasn't used avatar zebrafish to guide a patient's treatment yet, but she's hoping to trial that soon. There are many strengths to the zebrafish PDX model, if it can be shown to work well. One advantage is that sacrificing fish embryos might be more palatable than using dozens of adult mice. Dominique Martin is an associate professor in bioethics and professionalism at Deakin University. People might feel that zebrafish are something that is less ethically significant because animals will have differing levels of cognitive capacity. They'll be more or less able to experience distress or harm and potentially also in terms of their ability to suffer pain if things are done to them. But even if we use zebrafish and even if we use embryos that haven't developed full awareness, patient-derived xenograft models still kill many animals for a single patient's benefit. I think on the, on the one hand, it sounds quite exciting to have the possibility of you know, testing out your, your personalised best therapy in a range of subjects. It sounds like really the ultimate in personalised medicine. But then, of course, when you bear in mind that these are living, breathing animals and that it's not just a bunch of test tubes that we would be using to test out the best treatment for you, for a lot of people, that's going to raise some concerns. And if someone's deciding whether to sacrifice dozens of animal avatars to optimise chemotherapy, they'd also have to keep in mind that a PDX trial wouldn't always help. In some cases, it might be a way to ensure that they are able to have or to find an effective treatment or to avoid taking treatments that might expose them to particular risks of harm. But it's not necessarily about making our existing treatments 100 times better. In other circumstances, it may be very little benefit compared with using whatever the the standard treatment currently is. Which is why other research teams are sticking with culturing tumour cells in a dish and searching for ways to improve this technology. Dietmar Huttmacher is a professor for regenerative medicine at the Queensland University of Technology. He says older lab bench methods, where a patient's tumour cells are cultured on a flat surface, won't predict what happens in the patient most of the time. So instead of dishes, he and others have begun creating artificial 3D structures that mimic part of the human body which means that the cancer cells are now in a 3D microenvironment, which we bioengineer by using the patient's own cancer cells. And with more sophisticated models, we use not only the patient's cancer cells, but also the host cells in which the cancer sits. These 3D models are still in their infancy, but they're becoming increasingly lifelike. We use 3D printing technologies 
to really make very complex architectures, which mimic some of the features you would find in the extracellular matrix of tissues. And we build a microenvironment very similar to what the cancer cells would see in a patient's body. And recently, Dietmar Hutmacher's team has begun using these structures to try testing chemotherapy drugs on tumor cells. We see effects in our models, which we also know from the literature, have been seen in patients. So we haven't done a one-to-one with a patient yet, but we did see the same response which was reported for patients in clinical trials. Related fields have been growing so-called organoids or spheroids created using a patient's tumour. Rita Fior says these models are now about as fast as a zebrafish PDX model. But it's still too early to say whether any of these artificial models, not using an animal avatar, will match the 80% predictive rate we've seen in some early PDX studies. In in vitro models, the complexity of the in vitro model is really provided by the researcher, right? You put all the different cocktails of drugs, cocktails of growth factors, and it's the researchers that control the growth of the tumour, right? When we put in the fish or in the mouse, it's really the tumour that gives the instructions. If we have alternative models that don't require the use of animals in ways that would be harmful to those animals, as an ethicist, I think, well, that's a a no-brainer. If that's something that we could do just as effectively, but that's not always something that we can predict with certainty, particularly in the early stages of research, what will be the most effective models. Dominique Martin says all of these models should continue to be tested and compared, and not just in terms of how effective they are, because all of these models are expensive and time-consuming. And it's not clear yet who would actually pay for an individual's army of avatars. We usually want as many people as possible to benefit in order to make the research worthwhile. If the treatments are only going to be available to uh, selected individuals or particularly privileged individuals, then we have to worry about um, whether we, we should be doing it in the first place. That was the second of our features about chimeras in medicine, both produced by Carl Smith. A ringing in your ears, a dull hum, a constant static noise. An estimated one in six Australians living with constant tinnitus know this head noise all too well. But what is tinnitus? What causes it? And why are so many people living with this noise in their heads told there's nothing that can be done to help it? I've been putting those questions to the experts. Thousands of years ago, people thought that tinnitus was a bewitched ear, that it was an ear problem. About seven years ago, something weird started happening in Victoria Dedenko's head. I don't listen to loud music. I'm very sensitive to sound. I did have a fall with my dog when I think back. It could be a head and neck injury. It could be all of the above or none of the above. Victoria Dedenko had tinnitus. She was hearing sounds that weren't coming from an external source. A ringing in my ears, a buzz in my head. It was just this noise, like a static noise, a whistling kettle, and it actually hurt. And it just seemed to really intensify as the days went on. It's a symptom which occurs in, well, most people. But for a chunk of the population, it can cause problems. 
if we're in a silent enough environment and we're really listening hard, we will all hear something, uh, some sort of sound that the body makes. That about 15 to 20% of people will become aware or will report constant tinnitus. So it's pretty common. That's Miriam Westcott, an audiologist who specialises in treating tinnitus. Most people who develop tinnitus will over time, if not straight away, habituate to it. A smaller proportion of people do find that very difficult and they can become quite distressed by it. And Victoria Dedenko was one of the people who found the phantom sounds very distressing. I just segued into panic attacks, depression. The sound was in my head. I couldn't get away from it. I was despairing. I went to the doctor for help and they couldn't offer it. And they said I would cope in time. But I was not told how to cope. Tinnitus is challenging to treat, but it is treatable, despite what many people are told by medical professionals when they start seeking help. But what is tinnitus exactly? When you're hearing sound normally, your middle ear picks up sound waves and your inner ear turns these into electrical impulses that are translated by your brain. But damage to your ears or the neurons involved in hearing can change the way your body processes sound. Tinnitus is usually associated with hearing loss, partly because your brain is a statistical machine. In the interests of efficiency, along with translating sounds it's receiving, your brain is sometimes also predicting what it thinks it's going to hear. This is normally useful, but can become a problem when you have a change to your hearing. Here's Dirk de Ritter, a tinnitus researcher from the University of Otago. My brain still predicts these frequencies should arrive, and because they do not arrive, uh, the brain says, well, better safe than sorry and in many cases, and therefore it will generate the sound itself, pulling that sound from memory based on what it expects to hear. And that is the tinnitus that we hear. Tinnitus might be relatively common, but there's a lot of variation in how it presents. Most people have subjective tinnitus. Only they can hear the sound. There's also something called objective tinnitus. Miriam Westcott again due to some sort of muscular spasm or something like that, which can be heard by other people. But that is really pretty rare. Rarely, tinnitus can be a symptom of another medical problem, especially if it's just in one ear or it has a pulsing quality. For example, Meniere's disease, where people have hearing loss that fluctuates, can also produce fluctuating tinnitus. There are even some medications that can cause it, although this is rare. The sorts of medications that can do this include high doses of aspirin, not the sort of more milder doses that people tend to use. Some antibiotics, now these are used quite rarely and they're used in the management of severe infections and generally only when people are hospitalised. They're used very rarely because of the effect they can have on the hearing. Other medications that might affect the hearing, some antidepressants are known to cause tinnitus, quinine, some chemotherapy medications. Good tinnitus triage from an audiologist can help figure out what's going on so it can be treated appropriately. About half the people who seek help for tinnitus develop hyperacusis or reduced tolerance to noise. Around the same proportion can develop something called tonic tensor tympani syndrome or triple TS where a tiny muscle in the ear called the tensor tympani goes into spasm. When the brain subconsciously feels the need to protect the ear. So it's a really interesting mind-brain-body phenomenon. A key difficulty with hyperacusis, triple TS and tinnitus more generally is that they're exacerbated by anxiety, 
since the pandemic, the numbers seeking help from us have just about trebled. And audiologist Miriam Westcott says addressing that anxiety is one of the first steps in treating tinnitus. If the part of the brain that's responsible for dealing with fear and threat is all stirred up, then something like tinnitus can become perceived as more sinister. Every patient is different, but Miriam has a few strategies she recommends. People tend to monitor their tinnitus a great deal and we try and discourage that. Monitoring it will keep it prominent and will reinforce to the subconscious brain that it's an important sound. If the tinnitus is going to be there, we want the subconscious brain to evaluate it as an unimportant sound. Because hearing loss and tinnitus often appear together, people sometimes think the tinnitus is causing the hearing loss. Miriam says that's a misconception and that hearing aids can often help by amplifying external sound and drowning out those internal sounds. It's not that nothing can be done. There's a great deal that can be done. Part of the reason people with tinnitus are often told there's not much that can be done to help them is because that was true as little as a decade or two ago. Dirk Derrida trained as a neurosurgeon and has been chipping away at the tinnitus puzzle for some 20 years. Every time we think, well, we've solved it, and when we then try to apply that in, the, in research and in the clinic, we unfortunately see that it does not work. It works for about 20%, 30% of the patients, but not to everybody. Is it the same um, 30% every time? that it's working with or is it different? Like, are you getting closer to a solution? We're certainly getting closer. If not, I don't think anybody would still be doing research if we would just have the feeling that we get further away. But we are not there yet. His most recent work is looking at disrupting tinnitus with a combination of electrical stimulation and psychedelic drugs like ketamine. It sounds full on, but it's actually similar to treatments that are having success in people with post-traumatic stress disorder and it's working on similar principles. Over on the other side of the globe, research in guinea pigs is shedding light on the exact cells that are involved in tinnitus. Susan Shaw and her team at the University of Michigan have pinpointed the source of tinnitus to a place in the brainstem called... The dorsal cochlear nucleus. This is home to fusiform cells, which usually fire when your brain detects sound, but they fire at a higher rate than normal in animals with tinnitus too. Homing in on the source has allowed Dr Shaw's lab to start developing a treatment, but it's still in early phases. The treatment, like Dirk Derrida's, involves an electrical stimulation, but this time it's paired with sound. And the timing of the auditory and the somatosensory stimulation is very important because if it's the wrong timing, it could do nothing or it could even make the tinnitus worse. In an early trial, participants had the treatment for 30 minutes a day for four weeks. It improved tinnitus for about a week before people returned to their usual levels. So the idea is that if we do six weeks, now maybe it'll take two weeks to return to baseline. So in that case, worst case scenario, then people have to do it on the weekends. Maybe they do it every day for six weeks and then thereafter they tune it up. It's still early days, but one thing Susan Shaw, Dirk Derrida and Miriam Westcott all agree on is... There's hope for people living with tinnitus. Yes, I think we don't fully understand the mechanisms of tinnitus, but we understand a lot more than nothing. Oh, I hope, but I've always been a very uh, optimistic person, is that within 10 to 15 years, we will be able to treat at least 80 to 90% of people with tinnitus with one of the techniques that have been developed, whether it's by us or by somebody else, it doesn't matter. 
As for Victoria Dedenko, it hasn't taken fancy tech. Working with a tinnitus counsellor, she's reached a place where she's now able to live with her tinnitus. So I can still hear it. It's there. I'm living with it. I'm embracing it. But gosh, it took a long time to get there. Too long. Victoria Dedenko, chair and co-founder of Tinnitus Australia, finishing us off there. And that's the health report for this week. Catch you next time. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.